Greetings from Bio 2023. I'm Dwayne Schultes, and on this Vital Health Podcast, I'm speaking to Amitabh Chandra. Amitabh is the Director of Health Policy Research at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government and a Professor of Business Administration at the Harvard Business School. Dr. Chandra is a rare voice sounding an alarm about the unintended consequences of the drug pricing provisions of the Inflation Reduction Act. Amitabh, always great to see you, my friend. How are you? I am well. Thank you for inviting me. Well, it's great for you to be here. You came in as booth staff. Well done. (laughs) (laughs) I'm moving up in life, yeah. (laughs) So it's great to have you here on the floor with us. Looks like nothing's wrong, right? Everything's great. Well, you know, the science is extraordinary, and the science of today is the business of tomorrow. So, you know, the, the science, as long as the science is extraordinary, I think, you know, the, the, the industry will thrive. And as you and I have talked many times, what's coming out of the great academic labs, what's showing up in the leading science journals is really remarkable. Yeah. Think about melanoma. 50% of the people are living five, six years. Impossible 10 years ago. Absolutely. And melanoma is also a great example of evidence generation. Absolutely. Right? When those drugs first launched, they didn't really, we didn't have the knowledge for whether they would be safe, whether they would work first line. The toxicity issues around those checkpoint inhibitors was working that out, the way the microbiome of the gut and how that affected the efficacy of the drug. All these things needed to be worked out. And now we're seeing enormous gains in efficacy. It's incredible. Absolutely. And it was a very steady cadence of hundreds of clinical trials yes, that led to many, many subsequent indications. And it was those subsequent indications which caused doctors and patients to say, I want this medicine. Absolutely. If you look at the accelerated approval, we did a study, we released it here last year. Half of the accelerated approvals are three drugs. Optivo is one of them. Gleevec and Keytruda is the other. All three well stated in the WHO essential medicines list, all three fantastic drugs and all three fundamentally revolutionary in how they're treating solid tumors. It's incredible. It is incredible. So I think that's why bio is alive and well, <laughs> right? So Amitabh, we recorded a podcast uh, about six months ago. We were in Luzon at the CEOI conference on Alzheimer's and we wanted to sort of have a, a checkup here six months later when you're on your home turf. Where do you think we are now upon reflection? I think one of the things that I'm seeing is that the effect of the Inflation Reduction Act on companies will be extremely heterogeneous. I don't think that this is an act that affects all companies and therefore all investors equally. Some companies will have their medicines, prices negotiated quickly. And other companies are going to do just fine, even in the presence of the Inflation Reduction Act. Or put differently, you know, the act would really have to change for them to be threatened by the IRA. So I think that's point number one that we were not thinking about as carefully as as we ought to have back in November. I think the second point is we have really not understood, or we just, or at least I don't know, the ways in which the industry will react. It won't simply reduce R&D. That'll be the first, the first, the top line first response. You'll see a reduction in revenue, which in turn will feed into a reduction in R&D. But there's other strategies that firms can deploy. I mean, for example, a company could pay a generic company or a biosimilar company to enter. So almost a pay for enter But then the company could say, you know, I'll pay you to enter, but I don't want you to take over more than 5% of the market. 
So then it's exempted. And then it's exempted. And the FTC will complain, but it would be a very tough case for the FTC to prevail on, given that there's more competition now and, and not less competition. So I think that's an example of a firm strategy that we have not seen happen, but it's within the playbook of strategies that companies might deploy. So that's one strategy. Sure. Another strategy, Dwayne, that some companies will probably invoke is where they invest in a basket of tightly related molecules. And so as the first molecule becomes subject to price negotiation, they'll they, roll out they'll a fast They'll jump to follow. a second one, yeah. And it's not clear that that's going to be costly for the companies. It's going to reduce their overall profitability because as, we, as everyone who's listening to the podcast knows, drug discovery is incredibly expensive. But it'll be a way for companies to work around the IRA. I don't think this is going to be socially valuable, but I do think that there will be companies that will figure out how to build similar molecules quickly that avoid the negotiation completely. When we ran our numbers and we released a study this week at Bio, we wanted to make sure that we had our math right. And so we went to a lot of the companies that we thought were going to be very impacted. In the case of one R&D director, they laughed and said, well, you notice our last acquisition wasn't in oncology. There obviously is a movement away from certain asset classes. We know that. One of the other things, Amitabh, I'd love to get your opinion on, I think in the short term, what you're going to see, there's going to be a much more aggressive launch price. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if that happens. I think long term, what I am optimistic about is this idea that maybe CMS uses this opportunity that it has with the IRA to not simply get the lowest price that it can get. Because let's just agree, they can get a very low price. They can get a much lower price than any European pair simply because of the colossal size of the United States government. So this becomes an opportunity for CMS leadership to show the way on what value-based pricing might look like. And I've always thought that the number one hobgoblin to, yeah. to value-based pricing is the, is the fact that we don't really value medicines the same way that patients do. Patients really value medicines that benefit them when they're very, very sick. Whereas the standard quality framework treats one year of life one quality that's generated in a person who has one life year left or a person who has 40 life years left the same. Right. So that, this is an opportunity where CMS can really show the world the way forward and say, you know, we're going to engage in a, we're going to create a, a value framework where if you're helping severely ill patients, we will value those drugs more. And I think that's actually good for our ecosystem. If they pick that up. But unfortunately, if you look at some of the tenor of the language that's been coming out around Asai's Alzheimer's drug, which has good data, 30% reductions of incidence of cognitive decline, but they're still saying, look, we're going to restrict this. We're going to put it in a registry. It seems like they're not taking the positive high road that we were hoping do you think there's going to have to be public pressure? Dwayne, I'm an economist. I know nothing about... <laughs> I, I wonder about the answer to that all the time. But my sense from talking to people in Washington is that this version of the IRA is here to stay. It is not likely to be weakened. I hear that from folks on both sides of the aisle. Yeah. That, that this version is here to stay. And so what that makes me think is going forward, you know, we might see some, some, some changes here and there, but they'll all be small. They'll all be rounding error. 
obviously, if you have a large molecule, you get four more years of revenue under the current bill. And you said, and I want to be accurate here, and this was your quote from the last podcast, you want to encourage the small molecule drugs, they go generic. As a society, we want more small molecules. So it's weird we're squeezing the small molecule manufacturers. To this point, we found 75% of the drugs we're seeing impacted now are small molecules. The small molecules take a huge, huge hit. If you look at the small and large molecules in neurology, we saw zero studies that were publicly published that had a large molecule for neurology. So everything's small molecules. Are we creating huge disincentives in the small molecule space? Is this now real? This was theoretical before. Is this real? I think it's absolutely real. And I think this is, for me, the single biggest problem with the design of DIRA. I, I personally don't think that government shouldn't negotiate. Let me just come out there and yeah, say fine. that. I think that this is the only industry in the world that has a social contract with society, that the drugs will go generic at some point. Maybe it's nine years, maybe it's 13, maybe it's 15. So the fact that government's coming in at some point and negotiating prices does not bother me. What, what, what bothers me is, is, is what you are highlighting, which is we are discouraging innovation exactly where we need it, and that's in the small molecule space. And just to recap, there's three reasons why we need small molecules. The small molecule drug is, number one, a drug that I can take at home. I don't have to drive to an infusion center or a doctor's office to get it. You don't need to lay on a gurney to get treated. Absolutely. So that's not only a convenience thing, it actually affects adherence you know, and, and the patient experience. So that's and, reason number one. And it affects the money. The too. money, absolutely. The second reason is the small molecule drugs, actually, when they do go generic, the price competition that comes in is a lot more than the price competition that the biosimilar industry has seen. That's a absolutely wonderful thing. And then the third reason is in neurology, in neuroscience, we're going to need small molecule drugs. Absolutely. And that's right. where all the innovation is now, too. And, yes. And if it isn't, that's where we need the innovation, exactly. right? Well, I mean, look at the Nobel Prize. The last one was a medicinal chemistry person in a biotech in San Diego. I mean, there's a huge new growth in medicinal chemistry, small molecule companies in California, the birthplace of large molecules, the biotech sector. Now everything's been moving to small molecules. Belhara Therapeutics have $3 billion deal with Roche, $2.6 billion deal. It's a small molecule company. Yeah. And now we're we're housing these firms. I don't understand the logic of this. I Absolutely. really do. Absolutely. And even historically, if you look at the greatest drugs that the industry has brought to market in the past decade, in the past two decades, the small molecule drugs would be at the very top yeah, absolutely. of that list, right? But what we've done to hep C, what we've done to HIV, what we've done to so many cancers, to discriminate against small molecules is really, for me, the, the biggest problem with the IRA. We've been approached increasingly by both sides of the aisle in the House and Senate. And they're starting to realize maybe we've cut a little too deep now. Maybe we have maybe gone a bit too far. Sure, negotiation's fine, but isn't that also the role of the PBM? Doesn't the PBM supposedly driving the price efficiency? Isn't that how the system is currently working now? That's something I like about the small molecule space. I think that the... The ability of a PBM to create formularies has meant intense competition, intense price competition for manufacturers, which is why when CBO did a retrospective of how much did Medicare Part D actually cost the U.S. Treasury, it landed up costing the United States government a lot less than we thought originally, simply because those formularies 
brought you know pairs with incredible pricing power to their niece. Right. And so that's a part of the system that we want to encourage. I mean, we can talk about the other problems we have in the PBM market, but uh, first order, I think the PBM model is an excellent model. That's the problem I have with a lot of the people saying, look, we don't negotiate prices. Like, no, but you have a whole system here you've put in place that's supposed to, and then the skin in the game was the out-of-pocket. But the reality is there is a pricing mechanism there. It's not transparent. There's conflicting interests, and all the actors act in their own special interest. Obviously, the pharmaceutical industry profits, on average, over the last 10 years, have been declining. The prices have been going down, on average, even with new specialty pharmaceutical products. Yeah, one of the unfortunate things that resulted in the IRA is very poor reporting and writing on what has actually happened to manufacturers' revenues. Yes. I think you see a lot of articles talking about the straight-line increase in list prices, which is absolutely true. But that list price, is, as we all know, is not something the manufacturer receives. So now we can look at net price, right? There are data sets that allow us to look at net price, not for a particular drug, but at the industry level. Right. And net prices have increased at the same rate as inflation. Yeah, 13%, give or take. About 13% of the spend of GDP is healthcare broadly in pharmaceuticals. Yes, and it has stayed 13% for a very, very long time. Yeah. And the average annual growth of net prices, the price that manufacturers receive, has been somewhere between 25 to 2.9% a year. Yeah. But, and, you know, and list prices may have grown at an average annual rate of 12%, but that is not what manufacturers' revenues are growing at. So I think that is something, that is a narrative that has been left out. I think members of Congress are badly informed and, and, and I think a lot of this poor information births the IRA. And unfortunately, if you look at the sector as a whole, particularly with some of the profitability numbers from 2022, the net profitability was 18%, just under the mining and coal and energy sector. <laughs> you know, the highest profit margin, 30%, is up in banking and finance. Yeah, this is another one of those facts that I think people don't know about the biotech industry or the farm industry. In general... It has sort of underperformed every stock market index. <laughs> biotech is in the 90s. It's ranked 90th. Biotech. Biotech's a very brutal investment. Right. So if we thought that there was extra profit in this industry, then two things would have to be true. First is the biotech stock indices, the pharma stock indices, would have done better than the NASDAQ and the S&P index. They have not. And the second is biotech companies by themselves should be a larger and larger proportion of equity markets, and, they're, and not. they're not. So both of those facts is just sort of just sort of missing from the public discourse on the challenges with this industry. And there are challenges, right? There are challenges. There are the drugs that 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 don't go generic that ought to go generic. But I think the number one issue for us in this industry, which brings us right back to bio, is are we getting the right drugs that science is capable of, and are we getting the right drugs that patients? value. So that brings me right back to where you started, neurology, neuroscience. It's been so hard to make progress in those areas. Brutal. We desperately need progress. Patients are suffering, and it's a colossal financial strain on the system as well. And now we're starting to get the drugs, and they're becoming political issues with CMS, right? Where going back to the whole value-based healthcare. I mean, if we can reduce the rate of symptoms of Alzheimer's 
and we can arrest them for three, four, five years, the costs of having to pull a family member out of the workforce, which is not accounted for in ICER, <laughs> unfortunately, you're talking $64,000 a year on average now for, for income. I mean, that's an enormous unaccounted for cost that's being borne by society as a whole. That's a radical inefficiency that no one's counting. Wouldn't it be nice to have them back in the workforce and have someone living another four or five years, at least putting that further out? I agree with that. I think one challenge that CMS has is connecting back to our discussion about formularies. Sure. You know, there, are not, there, are, there aren't formularies in Part B, right? So in Medicare Part B, if the drug is disproportionately covered by the government, as an Alzheimer's drug would be, then the commercial payers have no incentive to negotiate that price because most of the payment will be done by Medicare. The It'll be covered under Advantage tools. or something else, yeah. That's right. And so I have always thought that one place for the industry to lead is to propose a sensible policy for Medicare Part B reform because government right now lacks the tools. That's an interesting point. Dare I see some of my clients are going to be upset. You think putting a PBM <laughs> rule in there of some type would help or some sort of competitive situation like we have in Part D? So I think there's, there's, there's at least two options, right? And they're similar. One is you could allow the PBMs to build formularies in Part B. In other words, take Medicare Part B for the medicines, for the right. infusion therapies, and somehow put it inside a Part D benefit. There would be formularies, you could have protected classes, you could maybe get rid of protected classes, but essentially the PBMs could be competing for payers' business by building formularies. The other option is Medicare Advantage, yeah. right? The more patients we get into Medicare Advantage, the greater the incentives are for manufacturers to demonstrate the value of their drugs. If their drugs are great drugs for Alzheimer's and they're reducing cognitive decline, for example, or the rate of cognitive decline, uh, if they're allowing someone to work longer, including a family member, yeah. then I think that's a benefit that a Medicare Advantage plan has the incentives to measure. So if we wanted to expand that, should this also then be accompanied by reform? Should we be looking at moving from 65 to 68 to 69? Could this be done as part of a general, if Advantage becomes a solution pathway? Does this also then need to be done with the general reform that's going to be required? Because it is going broke. We know that. So it's absolutely true that if you delay the Medicare retirement rate, the numbers start to look better. I personally don't like that approach. Okay. Even though the numbers look better. And the reason I don't like the approach is because many Americans have had lousy jobs for too long. Okay. And they're sort of physically in no position to work to 68 and 69. I might be, but they may not be. Okay. And so I don't want to force them to work till 68 or 69. I think a much better way to make the numbers work is to give Medicare Advantage all the financial incentives to squeeze waste and inefficiency out of the system. And there's tons of that. So in some sense, the more we rely on one of the payers to come and say, you know, look, there's all this hospital care that we're not going to cover because it doesn't work, or we can do it in a less acute setting. That's the way to make the numbers work a lot more than delaying the retirement age. One of the proposals that was out when we were looking at the Affordable Care Act, the ACA, was saying, look, we're just going to move this to state block grants. I always found that a really interesting idea. 
I always thought that would have been a very American way to try and solve the problem. Do you foresee that maybe something like that would start to occur? Do you think that that's potentially a solution to start letting the states figure things out, which frankly is what you would normally expect with uh, the U.S. structure as it is? Right, exactly. Like if you think about that structure, it's true that some states may completely blotch the design of their Medicaid program, but there might be incredible innovation by states. And one thing that we know about, we know two things about states. One is a lot of the action, a lot of the excitement on health policy is happening at the level of the 50 state houses. It's not yeah. happening at the level of Congress. So Absolutely. That's, that's opportunity number one. The second thing that I see is the red states have gotten redder and the blue states have gotten bluer politically within their state legislatures, which means that that, that no state is really aligned with CMS's thinking. No, absolutely not. <laughs> and that's probably okay. We want blue states to have a Medicaid program that is aligned with the blue state social values. And we might want red states to have a Medicaid program that's aligned with that red state's political value. So one state might want to offer a long-term care benefit. One state might want to attach a work requirement to Medicaid, and I think that should be up to the states. It would seem to me that that would create a real interesting competitive environment, similar to what we have with state property taxes, sales taxes, et cetera, where that would allow some innovation to occur. And I think what the problem is, you know, this top-down, it's not working. That gives us things like IRA. <laughs> yeah. This is the problem. It ends up, you know, one size fits all that doesn't work for anything, and it ends up being a political compromise. Yeah. Unfortunately, innovation in industry and patients are often the last part of this. It's about getting reelected. What we've got now, we're stuck with a law now that is going to put really weird, perverse incentives in certain parts of the value chain for innovation. And patients ultimately are going to be the, the big losers. If you look at 100 drugs, which we think would be impacted, we know that about 10 or 11 get highly, highly, highly negotiated and multiple times. Whilst the impact is $80 billion a year, which in itself is huge, they really concentrate in 10 companies, 11 companies. And these are the companies that have the most innovative products. What do you think is going to happen to, say, a Massachusetts, a California, a New Jersey, a Raleigh-Durham, if we're sucking $80 billion of liquidity a year out of the ecosystem? Here's what I don't know. Um, so suppose we're, uh, we're sucking $80 billion a year out of the ecosystem. Here's how I think about it. It's not... It's going to be bad. <laughs> Let's just start with that. But I don't know how bad. And the reason right. I say that is worldwide revenues for biopharma, worldwide, are about $950 billion a year today and growing at about 5% a year, right? So when you say we're going to take out... 80 billion in 2034 in a decade, that billion, that trillion dollars a year would have also grown at yeah. 5% a year. So it's probably going to be, you know, maybe like a 6 7% haircut to overall revenues. Is that big? Oh, yeah, it's enormous because if you were a company, the first thing that you'd probably cut is, is you know, like an R&D program because it doesn't affect you know, it doesn't affect outcomes. It doesn't affect today's revenues. It affects tomorrow's revenues. But that's the reason why I don't really know how an $80 billion, what, what the, which drugs get cut when we remove $80 billion a year from the system 10 years from now. I just don't know. And the problem, though, is if you look at that trillion number, a lot of that is not 
branded first line novel therapeutics type one FDA approvals. That's true. You know, that's only 10% of that. So unfortunately, the concentration of this is occurring in those companies that have that 10% branded, innovative, new, non-generic products. That's the problem there. Yeah. And this gets to the concentration issue that we're finding. Because yeah. yes, broadly, sure. If you don't want to pay a lot for drugs, it's great. Just don't invent new ones. Everything goes generic. Basta, you're done. Unfortunately, that's not going to get us a cure for Parkinson's. That's not going to get us a cure for Alzheimer's. That's not going to get us a cure for solid tumor cancers, unfortunately. I think the, the most optimistic thing that I can say about this, and I'm saying that because I'm an optimist, <laughs> is that... <laughs> well, I'll be your yang to your yang. That's fine. <laughs> I do not think that our industry has paid as much attention to what finance people like me call the return on invested capital. Sure. Return on invested capital in our industry has not been particularly high. The average M&A deal has not been value creating yeah, in that's our right. industry. So one way that the industry can respond to many of the challenges that the IRA poses is to become a lot savvier about measuring return on invested capital because that's something that our investors care about and that is something where patients and investors are absolutely aligned because the only way you can generate a return on invested capital is by bringing a great, great drug to market. Let's look at the orphan drug space. Right now, 80% of the orphan therapeutics and indications that need to be developed are for less than one in one million. So that's 80% of the available indications of the 8,000 some odd out there are for 330 people in the United States. If we look at some of the most successful, innovative, practical technology baseline platforms that have come out over the last 10 years, CAR-T certainly ticks that box. Acute lymphoblastic leukemia for CAR-T is 400 people a year. Billions and billions of dollars. Now we have a great CAR-T, fantastic, and you're treating 400 people with a multi-billion dollar investment. Your ROI ain't going to be good. <laughs> this is the problem. CRISPR-Cas9, N of 1. IRA disincentivizes orphan indications. You're trading that small early entry that starts that clock ticking, and then you're trading that for peak sales. So we're disincentivizing the orphan pathway. We're moving against the way all of the technology is moving us. Are we going to see more large cardiovascular indications? Are we going to go back to the 80s? Are we going to see more Lipitors? I doubt it because, at least in the cardiovascular space, whatever new cardiovascular drug I have to invest in has to beat generic, <laughs> generic Lipitor. Lipitor. Generic <laughs> Lipitor is free, and it's amazing. And the UK was talking about putting it in the water supply. Right. <laughs> they literally so were. <laughs> it's very hard. I mean, that's something that we have never really grappled with as a society, you know, and it's a, people will say, well, why do you have to grapple with it? You do want to grapple with it because you still need to make progress on cardiovascular disease, right? But I'm just saying with large indications, you know, because cancer is nev probably never going to be, unless something groundbreaking occurs, and we've been trying since the 70s, there just aren't those large, big bandwidth indications. I mean, Savaldi is probably one of the last ones. Now, will there be more? Maybe. But I think the problem that you identify, you're right, the ROI is not there, but it's the ROI is not occurring in where the science is directly leading us. That's the problem. The one thing, what the science is leading us to one thing that I don't think we, we fully understand. Many of the companies in South San Francisco and in Kendall Square are platform companies. Yeah. Where 
you know, think of Moderna, I think of them as like a recent example of a platform company sure. where all the therapeutics are mRNA-based. Yeah. Those kinds of companies can actually generate incredibly nonlinear returns to invested capital because you're not just getting one molecule. You might, if the platform is successful, get 30 molecules, 30 drugs out of it. Now, you might get zero as well. So just to be clear, I'm not saying that platform companies are unambiguously a good idea because you have to be able to handle incredible fluctuations in the, ver in the, in the valuation. But you get more shots on goal. You get more shots on goal. Yes. yes. So that is, you know, again, that is something that I have never seen before to the degree that I have. That we, for the first time in a very long time, you know, most companies are platform companies. But the problem with mRNA specifically, particularly with Moderna in this town, this is their, they're one of the big companies here. We just gave it away. The World Trade Organization just basically said, here you go. And now you potentially have state actors like China, Brazil, South Korea that can use mRNA. They can reverse engineer it and start platforming it into other things. We looked at this and there were 110 clinical developments ongoing in 35 different indications using an mRNA platform before the decision was made by the World Trade Organization supported by U.S. Trade. This has an enormous potential impact because this was initially developed as a cancer vector. What's your opinion of the WTO ruling with regards to mRNA, and doesn't this potentially upset the apple cart for a lot of new technology? I'm less worried, maybe, than I ought to be. Maybe I should be more worried. I don't know, Dwayne. But I'll tell you what. At the end of the day, my sense of that whole mRNA patent dispute was the patents on the basic science behind you know, an mRNA-based vaccine were probably weak because you know, that research had been put into the public domain. And so the strong patents are actually... The manufacturing patents, yes. exactly. Yes, yeah. which, which Moderna controls, which Moderna has. And Pfizer and BioNTech. Correct. And absolutely. Correct. So I think with the platform companies, and this, this, I think we should talk about this because I think this will be a general recipe for platform companies. The patents on the platform are likely to be quite weak. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. You're probably right. Right, because it won't be like the, 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 the foundational patents on Lipitor. No. Right, but there will be many, many, many more patents on the manufacturing. Well, that's really interesting then, Amitav, because then that leads to a move maybe to trade secrets then, a fundamental change in the way companies manage this. Yeah, I think the only challenge of trade secrets is, you know, it's only as, it's only you, that means that you only have intellectual property until someone figures out your secret. Right, exactly. Right, so, so you could rely on trade secrets. And I think companies already rely a fair bit on trade secrets. You know, I don't think that if I, here's my view of this. If I had access to every patent that Moderna owns, I still wouldn't be able to make what they make. There's a lot of knowledge in the scientists who work there. One of the other problems we're seeing now is, aside from the IRA in the 9 and 13, which we've discussed quite in depth, now you have the SMART plan, which says, okay, 9 and 13 is not enough. We want five years. So we seem to be ratcheting down further and further and why? Because, as you pointed out, it's politically popular on both sides of the aisle. That's an important conclusion. It is politically popular on both sides of the aisle. That's incredibly important to understand. And I think it's politically popular because there's just a lot of misinformation about what has actually happened to manufacturer revenues. I think there's a perception 
that they've gone up as a straight line because list prices have increased rapidly year on year. And again, I think that fundamental misconception needs to be addressed. How do we address it? Well, I've actually wondered increasingly whether the system of, of rebates that our industry relies on are actually bad for the industry in the very long run. Because rebates mean that the net price that the manufacturer receives is secret. Right? Everybody sees the list price. Nobody sees the net price. And nobody knows how much they're getting. Exactly. Well, you and I might figure it out, but it takes a couple Correct. months and we've so got to plow and I, through a bunch of data. Yeah, yeah, so you and I can open up like a whole bunch of 10Ks and go through it. <laughs> which we and do. And figure it out. Right, which we do. But then everybody else is like, but I didn't open up the 10K with you. Yeah. So I think one existential question on the business side for, for the industry is really the rebates help the industry. But in the long run, they really damage the industry because no one sees politicians, patients, doctors don't see the net price. And so they, they assume revenues have gone up with the increase in list price, and they have not. <laughs> and that's, that was the core problem with all of the issues in diabetes and insulin. Yeah. Because everyone assumed, oh my God, these pharma companies are going crazy, and it was 70 cents on the dollar was going to the middleman. Right. Right. And we knew, we knew from opening up the 10Ks that the net prices received by Novo and Lili have been falling at somewhere between 2 and 3% a year. Falling, yeah, falling, falling, right? Not, in real terms. Yeah. In, so, so that is an astonishing gap between the public narrative on diabetes, insulin pricing, and what's actually happening on the ground. And I wonder whether the solution to that is for the industry to rethink its reliance on rebates. Well, it would appear that it might not be the industry, but the Congress and antitrust, I mean, that may be coming. I know in the 50s in the record industry, when you used to do this to get records played on the radio and you do a kickback to the radio stations and the, and the radio channels, that was called payola. Um, but for some reason, we've accepted this within the current PBM system. Now, I do think having a broker there aggressively negotiating, yeah, I don't have a problem with that. That's competition. That's great. But the perverse incentives around the rebate system need to be dealt with. There was an interesting case with PCSK9 three or four years ago, because you had two companies, you had Amgen and Sanofi, who were competing on the PCSK9 portfolio. They thought they would do much better than they did. Obviously, Lipitor went generic. So PCSK9 was not profitable, and they bilaterally said, okay, we're going to reduce pricing on yeah. the PCSK9s. We're going to reduce price by half. So they went to the PBMs, and they said, okay, we're going to reduce price. And there was a letter that got leaked to the media from one of the PBMs. And they said, that's great. Thank you very much. By the way, we're going to keep the same rebate for 24 months, regardless if you lower price or not. That, to me, was a huge red flag about the real dynamics and who held the real channel power here. Unfortunately, it wasn't the companies with the PCSK9. <laughs> right. The question then becomes, if we're cramming down on the revenue side of the balance sheet on the innovative pharmaceutical company, we admit 80, 90% isn't that, it's generic, but you know, the, unfortunately the real innovation, this is a real hit for these companies. What's the risk of some of this stuff starting to move to lower cost markets for development like Singapore, like China? I think there's a risk and I think we should not be arrogant and pompous about that risk. And I'll come at your question from a different point of view. If you look at one of the antecedents of great molecules, it is great life sciences breakthroughs. So, you know, the kinds of ideas that win people Nobel Prizes, the sorts of papers that are published in Cell, in Science, and in Nature. Ultimately, our industry relies on those fundamental breakthroughs in the life sciences. So, if you look at 
well, who does, where does that life sciences research happen? 55% of it happens right here in the United States. Worldwide, 55% of the United States is 55%. If you look at the most impactful studies, yes. absolutely. 100%. In cell science nature. Yeah. China is now at number four. So we're not talking drugs. We're talking papers in cell science and nature. Extraordinary science. China was not on the map in terms of producing that quality of insight 20 years ago. It was not in my analysis. Yeah. But when they show up, they show up, you know, essentially bigger than countries like Japan and Germany. They show up at, at number four in the world, which is an extraordinary thing. But it's an antecedent to being actually able to produce the drugs. Right. Right. If you can write the paper on cell science and nature, the next thing you can figure out is the ability to do the R&D and make the drugs. So I don't think we should be, if we think that this is an, an industry of national importance and all of that, I don't think we should be sitting around, you know, thinking this will never happen. And I think there are people, you know, who think that, well, well, what have the Chinese done to date? Maybe not much, but they've done, they've done the most important foundational work that needs to be done before getting into R&D and manufacturing. The jet engine was invented in the UK, wasn't developed. 1980, Arthur Damrich at your institution, Harvard, published a landmark study, 60% of all therapeutics were developed in Europe at that point. They originated there. We just are working on a study on the general pharmaceutical legislation that's been revised in Europe. We said, hey, let's look at all 363 type one approvals over the last 10 years. We have the whole chain of custody for all 363 drugs. Let's look at stuff that was originated in Europe and then developed by European companies in Europe, uh, not Switzerland, not UK, but within the EU. You know what we found, Amitab? 17. 17 from 363. So it's like, okay, well, we better just look at origination then. That gave us 53 of 363. Europe, in 40 years, has gone from 60% to 53 out of 363, 16, 17%. There's nothing to say that that will not happen to us. Yeah, I think it's something that we should, we should take very seriously. I absolutely agree. Where do you think we are a year from now? You know, my, my sense is there is something good about the IRA that I think will be even more strengthened in another two years, which is uh, in Medicare Part D, as you know, there's now for the first time a maximum out-of-pocket cap yeah. of $2,000. But, you know, $2,000 is still a lot of money. So what is it, 40% of the country doesn't have $500 for an emergency or something like that? Right, something like that. I mean, the typical Medicare beneficiary has an income of $30,000. So yes. $2,000 is still going to be a lot for them. And remember, as we discussed in Medicare Part B, there's still that 20% coinsurance, right. right? Which is very painful if you're sitting in traditional Medicare and people don't understand that. It's another, re I think it's one reason why people are moving to Medicare Advantage because Medicare Advantage provides them with better insurance than traditional Medicare. So I think that, you know, a year or two years from now, we'll still be talking about out-of-pocket. We, we, we've not solved it. Number one. And I think the second thing we'll be talking about is much greater use by payers in their use of prior authorization and utilization management. Because if they can't use cost sharing, they're going to have to use utilization management. And I don't know if they have any good at doing the prior, at the prior authorization and utilization Or performance agreements. Right. You know, exactly. Right. You know, right. pay on performance, those yeah. sort of things. All that, of those things have yeah. to be implemented. And, the, you know, will they be done thoughtfully? Will they be done well? Will they be clinically online? Will the doctors like them? Will the patients understand them? I don't know. So I think we will have, maybe we'll still be talking a little bit about cost sharing, but we'll be mostly talking about prior authorization and utilization management. 
Amitab, it's great to see you, my friend. My my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Thanks, Amitab. The executive producer of the Vital Health Podcast is Dwayne Schultes. Our editor is Mark Brodine. Our project manager is Gwen Laughlin. The Vital Health Podcast is a production of Vital Transformation, LLC, copyright 2023.